Hey, welcome to the Portrait Church Podcast. Pastor Jay here, and I'm excited for you to listen to this message as part of our vision series here at Portrait Church. I hope these messages give you insight into how we as a church are going to follow and live the lifestyle of Jesus. If you would love to know more about our church, you can visit portrait.church online or find us on social media or find us at the Mitten Building on Sundays. Hope you enjoy this message and hope to see you soon. And scripture reads, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God, this morning, my prayer is simple. Would people leave with a renewed picture of who you are? Would they be more in love with you? Would we have a a hunger to know and, and, and just understand your ways. God, we're all coming in here in different seasons on different journeys, but today my hope and prayer is like every day is that we would experience the goodness of God. We would experience that through your word, which is inspired by you. We literally just heard from you. And so this morning I pray that you would get glory in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. So our church, as you heard from Dale, has this this vision that we want people to see Jesus. We want people to be with Jesus. We want people to become like Jesus. And ultimately, we want people to do what Jesus did. And doing that, how you see the Bible will dramatically transform the way you live your life. Because this Bible is the very thing that was given to us by God, that was inspired by God. And so how you see and read this, it changes everything about you. I I believe it was A.W. Tozer that said, um, the most important thing about us is what we think about God, our thoughts about him. And when I think about it, growing up, I had very, I had a lot of misconceptions about the Bible, if I'm being honest with you. You see, there was a question as I, as I constantly like wrestled with looking at the text and when I was sitting Sunday sermons, I, I came away with this question like, God, are, are we good? <laughs> like, are we good? Like, am I doing enough? Is, you know, I grew up in a church and, and it was not, I'm not throwing any shade at the church and sorry, shade means I'm not throwing any negative, uh, publicity towards the church. Um, I'm not giving umbrellas or anything like that. Remember, if this is your first time with us, we do speak somewhat of abonics here, so we're going to learn today. But I'm not throwing shade, but I think growing up, I would constantly hear about this thing called the rapture, like every two weeks. And if you grew up in the church, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So most of my childhood and life was like uh, like this uncomfortable fear and it, it what it did is it kept me from having like an actual relationship with God. This is again, my story. I'm not. And and what I realized growing up is that I often just looked at the Bible only as a mirror. 
right? So if you know a mirror, a piece of glass to look at me so I can fix me and then I can be okay with me. So when you look at the mirror, you're, you're, you're looking at you. And I know in the Bible you read in James where it says, you know, the, the one who uh, listens to the word of God but then doesn't do it is like a man who looks at himself in the mirror and doesn't see the Chick-fil-A sauce on his face and then just, he doesn't clean it and then he just goes away and forgets everything he heard. Now there's, there's yes, the Bible is absolutely, it's gonna show you who you are. But can I give you uh, maybe a different way to view the Bible? And that is viewing it as a mirror, not a mirror, a window. There we go, a window. Because the other thing about mirrors is they tend to be very performative, right? Like if you were to, if you were to constantly go to the Bible like I did, often trying to evaluate how well I was doing for God, it is such an exhausting way to live. But if you look at the Bible as a window, you're not just looking at yourself, but you're looking through something to see something more beautiful. And here's the thing about windows, you still catch a glimpse of yourself, right? You still catch a glimpse of yourself. But, but the window of scripture, the whole essence of the Bible is not this behavior manual so that you can check these to-do lists so that you and God are good. This Bible is the greatest story. It's an epic narrative, and it's a window that helps you see Jesus. Everything about the Bible, it points back. Every good story has a hero. And the problem with looking at the Bible just as a mirror is you end up making yourself the hero, and we're bad heroes. And so the Bible is not a book about us, but it's a book for us and a book about God and a window through the most beautiful view of God and his ways and how he calls us to live. And so what we are trying to do with last week, what we're trying to do with this week and then the next two weeks is for you to experience the vision, the heartbeat of our church through what we would call the greatest story ever told in the greatest book that you and I can hold. Again, the Bible is not some sort of behavioral, man, behavioral manual. It's a unified collection of books, several different genres, and some parts are prescriptive and descriptive. What do I mean by that? Prescriptive is describing something that should be, right? So for instance, the Bible says that, Jay, you should flee from sexual immorality. Yes, my wife would love that one. The Bible also says in Matthew 6 that be careful not to do all your good deeds and your righteous acts before people to be seen by them because then you will have no reward from your father in heaven. So all that little PR Christianity that you posted on social media just so that you can be seen, God says, yo, that's not the rewards that I'm after. But then there's also descriptive, describing something that happened in that context. So just because Solomon had a thousand wives, gentlemen, don't mean that you get to do that too. And all the ladies said, amen. Right, so we have to understand as we view scripture, this is a window to see the beauty of God, to see the beauty of his ways. And then we have to understand, is this describing something or is this prescribing something? Because that is often how people have misused scripture to manipulate. 
Something that is descriptive in a context becomes prescriptive. And now you're left with the tension of just only looking at you instead of looking to God. And we also here at Portrait believe that Scripture interprets Scripture because Scripture is divinely inspired by God. And this entire, I can't say it enough, this entire Scripture, this entire book points to Jesus, which is why we are so, we are obsessed with Jesus here. Because we know if we can just help you encounter him, if we can put you into the presence of him, then you can ultimately leave transformed. But if we just point you to ourselves and we just point you to this church and we just point you to us and and, and what we think, then you are going to leave more frustrated than when you came in hopeful. And so as we, if you weren't here last week, we talked about this thing called the great mandate. And the great mandate is simply that God stepped out on nothing. He needed nothing in order to create something. That God would create the heavens and the earth, the livestock, the fish and the seas, the birds and the air. And then he would create humanity. And he said, everything is good. And he designed everything for human flourishing. And so then he tells humanity, take your dignity that I gave you. Take the dominion that I'm calling you to. And I want you to go spread this goodness. And then humanity decides, you know what? We can define what's good. We can design our lives better than God so that they would ultimately distrust God. And the problem about that is, is when you look through the window of scripture about what life was like before sin entered the world, you, it's this picture of what the Bible calls shalom. And what shalom is, it's a universal flourishing. It is a wholeness. It is delight. And in short, it is the way things ought to be. The way God created was this perfect shalom. It was perfect. But then because of the distrust, sin would enter into the world. And this whole redefining of goodness would be catastrophic to shalom. So I want us to sit here with a moment, in a moment for a little bit about this visceral word called sin, right? You can't, someone's knocking Isaiah. You might want to let them in. Maybe the Holy Spirit is just, <laughs> hey, God said, come and knock at my door and we will let you in. Look, all right, so let's focus in. Sin is this, right? Sin comes from a Greek word with the term archery. So, so, so when someone, if you know modern day, present day, old school archery, maybe you're into Robin Hood like I was, archery is just simply you pulling back, you aim at a bullseye and sin was if you missed the mark. That's what they would call sin. That's how we got its original term in the English and Greek. So sin is essentially missing the mark. And that's exactly what humanity did. God had a, he had a perfect vision of shalom. And then they would pull back because they thought they can design and do everything on their own. And they would, Adam and Eve would miss the mark. And so the problem is, is that although we have inherent dignity, now we have a disposition of sin. Sin is now part of our character. It's not just a accidental thing we do. It's just part of who we are. And so because God is the creator of shalom, he is all for shalom, which means he's against sin because it corrupts shalom. Sin corrupts shalom. It corrupts this perfect peace. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
Because you were in a work environment or you were in a relationship with someone and there was distrust, there were lies, there was abuse. And all of a sudden, not only did that sin cause something to happen in your world, but now it affects the way that you even engage other people. Because you, because you can walk around life with a, with a distrust, with a wall, with a suspicion. Many of you were sexually abused and now all of a sudden to even consider being in a relationship with someone, oh my gosh, the shalom of what that could look like is, it's damaged, it's corrupted. Many of you know what it feels like to cause someone hurt, to cause someone distrust. If I can be honest, like um, I was so worried about um, when I was engaged, um, what my wife would think about how much student debt I had. Oh, student debt people in the house, come on. Don't be ashamed. Don't, don't cheer. <laughs> Unless you paid it off, cheer. But if not, man, we're going to ask God who can do exceedingly and abundantly more to help you get that debt off. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. I was so concerned with my image before my wife. I was so concerned with how she was going to view me that I was not completely honest with her when we were engaged about how much student debt I had. It was like triple the amount she thought. Two months before marriage. Do you think that we had complete trust and peace? No. Even when we got married, because of my sin, because of my shortcoming, because I missed the mark of being honest, because I was so busy worried about her approval, that it would cause for years of this brokenness of shalom in our marriage, where I had to continue to pursue goodness, continue to pursue shalom so that that can be restored. But that only came through the way of Jesus. And see, all of you know at some point what happens when sin is executed, whether that's by you or by someone else. Sin is just not an isolated mistake. We have to make sure that we understand that. It is an inner reality that lives within us naturally. If we have a default button, it's going to sin. If you have a default mode, if you're gonna reset your, it's still going to have sin there. Cornelius uh, Plantiga Jr., he says this, sin hurts other people and grieves God, but it also corrodes us. Sin is a form of self-abuse. God hates sin, not just because it violates his law, but more substantively because it violates shalom, because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way that things were supposed to be. And sin is essentially this. It is the absence of God's goodness. Sin is the absence of God's goodness. So if we're talking about this great mandate of, of us going and spreading goodness, well, sin is actually the opposite. Sin is absent of every good thing that comes from God. And because God has not, does not, and will not sin, that makes him holy. That makes him, the word holy means he's set apart He's different because he does not know sin. And I'll explain what I mean by that because he has not sinned himself. But God, listen, God 
being so committed to his creation, so committed to goodness, a few chapters later in Genesis, he would make a a promise to a man named Abraham. Maybe many of you have heard uh, Abraham's name before, but if you haven't, Abraham, this is what he says in Genesis 12. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Here God goes again. People keep sinning. People keep not pursuing shalom. And here he is making a promise to this one man and says, okay, Man, all these other folks, they are not doing it. Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless your line. Your people are going to be my people. And like chapters after that happens, all of God's people literally go into slavery. And so again, what does God do? God frees them out of slavery because he has goodness in mind for his people, because he cares for his people. And he uses a man named Moses to free his people out from under Pharaoh's captivity. And halfway through this window that we get to look at in the book of Exodus, and here's what I'm doing. I'm trying to, I'm trying to take you on a journey of this narrative. So if I'm skipping around, trust me, it's, this is a full picture. This is what I love about the Bible because it, it interprets itself, but it tells this greater narrative. It tells this greater story. So then when we get to the book of Exodus, halfway through, you start seeing all these laws that were given. So you know this thing about the Bible and these 10 commandments. Well, did you know there's like over 600, right? Yeah, it was like, we thought 10 was hard. You said 600? And yes, but here's here's why, here's why. God enacted these laws because what he was trying to do was show his wisdom. His desire, again, was for goodness. And he wanted the people in that context and that time to be different. He wanted his people to be distinct from any other nation. In a cultural time where women were not being treated, treated, women were, were not dignified, where slavery exists, so many of God's laws were to, to see a renewed people, to see a distinct people. And in Leviticus 20, verse 26, this is what, this is what God says to these people. You are to be holy. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy. And I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. You see, the reason not only that God enacted these laws for his people to be different, for his people to be distinct, he set the laws in place because he is a God of justice. To have shalom means that you need someone who is just. And to, and to see justice be uh, taken out in its full extent, you need a judge. And those of you that know if you were ever to be on trial, you do not want a corrupt judge, right? You don't want a judge who's got an inside with the jury or an inside with the people that you're going to. You want a judge who is pure and is good. And that's why I believe Jesus makes the perfect judge because there's nothing about him that is not good. He is perfect. So he's able to see things rightly. He is not swayed. He cannot be corrupted. He cannot be coerced. He cannot be paid off. He sees things rightly. He is a perfect judge. And in ancient Near Eastern context, 
it was very common for people to do these things called animal sacrifices. Maybe you've heard about that before. But remember, descriptive, this is describing in that context. And the reason they did that is because they wanted to avoid this ultimate judgment and they wanted to, they wanted to sacrifice these animals so that there would be a restored relationship with God. And so they would find these blameless animals, these perfect animals, and then they would sacrifice them because they knew that we couldn't get up to heaven. And so this animal dying in our place is essentially dying. And this is, this is making this relationship right because of my sin. And this is going to give me forgiveness from God. And so again, God, he accepts his practice. This is in that context. This is what they are doing. But this is what God does with that practice. He said, oh, I'm going to change the meaning of that practice. Instead of this sacrificing these animals of being used to appease God's wrath, to enact his justice as the pagans did during that time, these sacrifices were used to remind people that breaking the covenant, breaking the shalom that God had, breaking this life would eventually lead to death. Because again, one of the harsh realities is that if God is going to be a judge and if he is going to want shalom and if he's calling his people to be distinct, then when people break that, he has the right to judge because he's God, because he's the creator, because he's the one that enacts the laws. And sin is such a hard word and process for us to understand because of the, uh, because of the way it's been used, the way it's been uh, communicated and shouted at people. But here's, here's the reality. Sin breaks God's heart. And ultimately, this is what it says. And, and, and we have to be consistent with what all of scripture says about like life when we look through the window that, that God is calling us to. And it says that one day, Romans 13, that whatever the law says, it says that those who are under the law, that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world will be held accountable to God. We're gonna be held accountable to God for how we lived for how we, how we domained, how we treated one another, how we, did we even have faith in what he's done? We are going to be held accountable because of a just God, that there is going to be an ultimate judgment. At the end of the, at the end of the book in Revelation 21 says, it says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murders, the sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Romans 6, 23. It's the reality. Again, when we look through the window of what God says in scripture, it says, for the wages of sin is death. What you and I and what those people do, because, because we have this bent towards sin, towards putting us in the center of the story, towards being detestable for our faithlessness, for our sexual immorality, for, for our idolatry, for lying, because we did not pursue shalom that Jesus called us to. It says, for the wages of sin is death. But... That's like the best word in the Bible. But. Y'all ever had a situation where it was like, so-and-so got in a car accident, but I need you to let them, I need to let you know they're safe. Hey, um, the, the scan shows that you got cancer, but 
It was on the early stages so that we can treat it right away and everything is gonna be good. Hey, um, the baby's measuring a little off, but the heartbeat's looking good. It, this, I, we think this is gonna be great. This word, but, it changes the trajectory of how you encounter what happened before. It changes it. Here's the thing. We cannot understand the goodness of the news of the gospel unless we understand how bad it really is. We have to understand how bad it is. But God, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. What God now does is all throughout the Old Testament, even the people that he used, even guys like Noah, drunkard, even guys like King David sliding into Bathsheba's DMs, cheating. Even these guys that God used in incredible ways, these kings, they ultimately did not rule and live as God had intended. So now what God does is he gets his arrow of his son. He aims at the world and then he hits the bullseye. He sends Jesus down. Jesus lives a perfect life. Jesus is without sin. Jesus himself, he would lower himself, putting on human flesh, coming as the form of a servant, even to the point of being obedient to death. Because this is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, for I have not come to abolish them, but I came to fulfill them. There was not a sacrifice that was perfect enough to sustain all of the sin, all of the evil doings, but Jesus said, I will go. And then we get back to our main text that we read this morning, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This, my friends, is what we call the great exchange. You heard of the great mandate? Now, this is what we call the great exchange. It's not that Jesus didn't, when it says he who knew no sin, it's not that Jesus wasn't aware of sin. You and, you and I both know there's a difference between knowing of someone and actually knowing them, right? Like, I know of every uh, player that the Lakers got this summer. I don't know them like that. Because if they did, I think they would have probably paid for this building or something, right? I don't know them like that, but there's a difference between knowing of, so there's a difference between knowing of a place that everyone says, oh, you should go try and you should eat, it's great, than actually going there and actually ordering and actually enjoying. See, here's the difference. Jesus knew about sin, but he didn't know sin. He didn't know sin like we know sin. He knew about it because of all the destruction that was happening, but he, had no, he, didn't, he did not know sin personally because he did not sin. He was holy, fully God, fully man. Even stepping down off of his throne, he still did not sin. And, and Hebrews says he was tempted and tried in every way, just like you and I. 
He was tempted with a, a success. He was tempted of, of, of idolizing his power. He was tempted, Satan tried everything, tempted his identity, but yet without sin. And Jesus would look at humanity because he loved us so much that he did not want to see us apart from him for all eternity. He says, oh, I have paradise in mind. And here's the thing, you couldn't pay for it. I will. In 2019, Morehouse College would have their graduating uh, class of nearly 400 students. And these 400 students in this graduating class were sitting in probably uh, sections just like this. And the student loan average amount for each of these students was around $30,000. 22-year-old finance major Aaron Mitchum, how calc- he had calculated how long exactly would take him to pay off his over $150,000 student loans. At least 25 years, if he were to use half of his salary, half of the money, if he were to make that, 25 years, possibly more. And so as the keynote speaker gets up to speak, Mr. Robert Smith happens to be a billionaire. That's good. He gives this commencement message, heartfelt message. And at the end of his message, he says, my family legacy and I, we have decided to pay off all the student debt of every single student in the class. $40 million. Students shocked, tears. This student, Aaron, would say, this would be the best gift I've ever received in my life. The reason why I think he probably felt that the most is because he had the most. You know, the the person that maybe had 5,000, I mean, it's, Thank you, you know, my mom, maybe my parents are going to pay it off or maybe I was going to pay it off in a year. But to the one who has $150,000, who's calculating how they're going to do this, who's understanding the cost of how long this is going to take, worship. Oh my gosh, this is the best gift I have ever received. Friends, You and I are sitting in the graduation seats of life and there's a debt that we're going to end up spending our whole life paying because we're not perfect because of sin. And God sends Jesus down to earth. And in Jesus's commencement speech, he says, no, I am going to die in your place. I am going to pay the price that you can't pay. And I'm not going to ask you to pay it back. This is a definitive moment. And so Jesus would go to the cross. He would take on all the, all the sin 
all the brokenness from every single one of us in this world, past, present, future, and they would be all poured onto him. All of the sin and God's wrath would be taken out on his very own son. And then he would die. He would die. A couple months after the graduation commencement speech, you know, it's like one thing for someone to say they're going to pay off your debt. It's like, yo, I'm looking at the bank statement. Like, is this thing, is this thing happening? Right? Is this thing going to happen? So three months after the commencement, Mr. Smith followed through on his plan. Zeros across the student debt accounts. Can I tell you three days later, Jesus would raise up from the dead. Three days later, Jesus would conquer death and sin. Three days later, now this great exchange can happen because when you put your faith in that work, when you put your faith, look, when Jesus woke up out of the grave, the check cleared, y'all. The check cleared. There's not, you don't got to bust out your, your, your checkbook. You don't got enough money. You don't got enough good deeds. Many of, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you've thought that your good deeds is actually the thing that got you out. It's not. Can I remind you? It's God's grace and his grace alone. And so now we have this beautiful exchange. So now when you mess up, when you fall short in sin, those of you that have put your faith, that you declared that Jesus is the son of God, that he died and raised again, and now he sits on the throne of life. When you put your trust in his finished work, you have what's called salvation, a free gift. And so now, before, and, and if you were anything like me, I would go to God so timidly when in my sin. I would go to him so full of shame. But the reality is when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, he doesn't see your sin, he sees his son. It says, for God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So God takes our track record of all the sin we've committed. And then you look at his track record, zip. He's like, we're going to trade. What a beautiful exchange. And this exchange, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, should li listen to what the verse says before this. It says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He says, now with this exchange, be ambassadors of it. Like if we sat in the reality daily of this exchange, how much grace would we have for people? How much love would we have for people? How much care would we have for people? The world doesn't need your like knowledge. The world needs to see Christians who will repent, who will be honest about this exchange and say, look, it's not me, it's God. And who are gonna be honest to say, look, I had this disposition towards sin, but I am bringing it to the Lord because he sees his son and not me. So I don't walk in condemnation. I walk in grace, I walk in truth, and I wanna give that to you. 
I want to give that to you. This great exchange. There's people walking in this room. There's people walking in life, just calculating this debt that they have that they cannot pay. And they're, they're depressed and they're thinking about all the things that they've tried to do that's not working. And they have a free gift. So don't you dare go and think and tell them and make them feel like they got to pay for it when you didn't pay for it. You didn't pay for it. We need to have a posture as a church. We need to have a posture of a people who live into this great exchange that produces the character of God. Tim Keller says this, the good news of the gospel is we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. This is the great exchange. God would reconcile us back to himself through Jesus. And now he says, I'm giving you this ministry of reconciliation. Go and pursue shalom. And when it breaks, reconcile. Reconcile to one another. No more hate, reconciliation. Because that's what I did for you.